Welcome to the HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. This event was recorded live at the Theakston Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival. Enjoy. I just want to say, first of all, before this writing business, that I'd like, like to tell you what a very important person I am. You, <laughs> you don't mind this, do you? Well, I knew this two, 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 uh, two, two seasons ago because I'm very fond of lawns. I'm not a flower man, I'm a lawn man. And I went along near Oxford to, to get some of these granules. You know the granules, don't you? You know what I'm talking about, do yeah. I'm not boring you already, am I? <laughs> And, and I went along to get this very, very large sack of, 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 of granules. You know, they sort of, sort, sort of get rid of the weeds, don't they? You have to green up the lawn and the moss. And, and it's a very, very large and very expensive. You have to have a trolley to take it away. And towards the end of the transaction, at the counter, there was a lovely girl there, a beautifully spoken girl, uh, at, at, at the checkout. She was perhaps in her late 50s or early 60s. I'm not sure. Just, just as we were finishing, she said to me, and this is what I want to tell you. She said to me, you wouldn't believe it. She said, could I please have your autograph, Mr. Dexter? <laughs> now, and this is as near immortality as you can get to in life, isn't it? <laughs> and and, and I, I said, of course you can, my darling, and I'm a very observant person. And I could see a wedding ring on the appropriate finger. And, 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 and uh, I said to her, is it for you or your husband or for both of you? I said, I'd be fine. And she looked at me with complete amazement in her heart. And she said, no, she said, I just wanted you to sign the credit card slip. <laughs> Life is full of disappointments, isn't it? Anyway, as Maria, Maria said, uh, I spent all my life in, in education, really, and in a competitively short time on writing. I know, I know even uh, uh, less about writing than, than education, so I thought I ought to talk about writing. Is that all right with you? Yes. Yeah. Well, what do you want? Let's get rid of one or two things first of all. One or two general points, and then we come to specifics about writing. Let's uh, let, let's start off by getting rid of the uh, agents. Uh, when when I, when I say getting rid of the agents, you know what I mean, don't you? I mean, I, I don't want to go and shoot them all or anything like that. But it, it does seem to me I know nothing about agents, so let's forget them all. Always. Uh, it's only because I've never had an agent myself. I've never had an agent, but I've been extraordinarily fortunate in, in that I've had four wonderful editors, Lord Harding. People will know, I think three of my editors, I, th I know they are here anyway. Uh, Lord Harding of Penshurst was the first, alas, he's not here, not with us anymore. And then Hilary Hale. Some of you know Hilary Hale, don't you? I remember her awfully well because she said to me, she gave me some invaluable advice. She said, if the television comes along and offers you some money, you know. She said, don't worry too much, just take the money and run, she said, you know, for this. And, and also she said to me, never get rid of the copyright on this, which is wonderful, wonderful advice, really. And Hilary is here today, and I had the pleasure of seeing her this morning. And, and, and then Maria, who, who came, came, came along, to look after, and then Beverly Cousins, uh, who is here also, I think, and then Maria again. Maria was extraordinarily helpful to me as an editor because she told me all the things I didn't know. I know that once I wrote a book uh, on, uh, started off in, in Lyme Regis. You know where Lyme Regis is, don't you? Yes. Good, beautiful place on the south coast near somewhere, isn't it? Uh, and, <laughs> I'd gone there to do it. I don't do any research at all myself. <laughs> but I thought I'd go there and have a lovely holiday. And uh, we, we ordered Dorothy and myself. We, we ordered a room just over the sea. And, and I looked out every morning and I thought, this is what you know, a writer ought to do, look at the, the sea. And I noticed that the sea was coming in from left to right. Hmm? Always the waves came in left to right and somersaulting over each other, coming up to the shore and landing there with a sort of 
filmy, lacy look on the beach. And outside the window, the seagulls were going. And I thought, that's just like those Japanese aircraft, you remember, going like, like this. I put it all down. And I never, ever let anybody read my, my work. I, I don't want anybody else's opinion, <laughs> except my editor's opinion. And Maria was looking after me then. And I said, there's a lovely bit about Lyme Regis. I said, I think it's the best thing I've ever written. <laughs> it was only a lengthy paragraph like this about Lyme Regis. And Maria here, she said to me, it's a lovely piece of writing. She said, in fact, I think it's the best piece of writing in the book. And she said, but why don't you get rid of it and get on with the story? She said. <laughs> and I was reminded of what Dr. Johnson said, which all of us know, don't we? Whenever you think you have written anything particularly fine, strike it out. <laughs> and so we struck it out. And I was very sad. But it's not there anymore. Anyway, that's uh, this uh, research business. Uh, that was research. I've never done any research, really, uh, on, on anything else, except that whatever I know of police procedure, I have learned, most gratefully, from the work of my fellow crime writers. <laughs> I'd never heard of the Socos until... Uh... <laughs> no, 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 I hadn't. No. Never heard of the Socos, so I looked it up in chambers and I discovered what it was. And one of my old pupils I knew was a Socco in Northampton. So I, I rang him up and said, uh, can you tell me something about the Socos? He started to, oh, no, 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 I said, I don't want anything, anything technical at all. I said, what colour overalls do they wear, you know? And he said, white. And I got a sentence straight away, hadn't I, really? You know, with their usual practice, efficiency, the Socos came along to the scene with the white overall Socko, put that in afterward, came to the scene, started fiddling about, finicking it out with photographs and fingerprints. So I was very grateful. That was my one piece of research, direct research, onto police procedure. But I did do something else as well. I don't know whether you remember a man called Peter Imbert, do you? Do any of you remember him who became police commissioner? And he, he was the boss in, uh, in Oxfordshire of the Thames Valley Police. And in one of the scripts I had, because I had to copyright out to say everything's okay, and, and one of the script writers had written, Lewis, colon, you know, I think you're a bloody fool, sir. So I said, we can't have that. And he said, what you've got to do is have a bit of oomph and go. He said, your idea of action, he said, is a couple of dons talking, talking in front of, you know, the Ashmolean about Aristotle. He said, we've got to have more life and go, a bit, of, a bit of controversy, a bit of antagonism. And I said, no, this is completely out of character, and it's going to go. And we had a bit of a row about it. And I said, look here, what I do is this. I go along and see my dear friend Peter Imbert, who is very, very kind to crime writers, wonderfully kind. And I said, whatever he says, I'm going to accept Peter Imbert, police commissioner, Scotland Yard boss. And so I went to him and I said, look here, Peter, could you please tell me, would a police sergeant in your CID say to a chief inspector in the CID, same department, would he ever say to him, I think you're a bloody fool, sir? And Peter Imbert thought for a minute and then he said, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then he said, once. <laughs> so it was a draw, wasn't it, really? If you get what you did. But, but any, anyway, that, 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 that's enough about research. I've got, uh, I've got uh, one or two other general points. Could, could I say, first of all, uh, about um, what's that? Research, procedure. I know nothing about, about, uh, about, about them at all. Writing Gen general points. Uh, what, what is it? Oh, 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 yes, this whole business about plot and characterization. Let's get rid of that completely. I, I think it's phony. We have, all have these arguments, don't we? Don't we, about which is important? And obviously they're both important. And I've always said, you know, that 
it, it, it's a question really of them being subsumed by the story. The story is what you want, isn't it? The most wonderful thing that happens to any of us crime writers is when the wife upstairs and the husband downstairs, or vice versa, one shouts to the other, aren't you coming to bed, my darling? And you say, yes, I am, as soon as I've finished this chapter. I mean, this is the great accolade, isn't it? When somebody thinks finishing the chapter is far more important than going to bed. I mean, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? It's a wonderful thing. And I, I know that I, I usually read in bed, and I want to tell you this, that I've got a brother who's a bit older than I am, and he thinks that I'm the greatest writer ever born. Shall I tell you why? Because I, I began to write very short chapters. And, and, and he said to me, and listen very carefully, he said, do you know when I read one of your books, I can actually finish one of your chapters before I fall asleep. <laughs> now then, you, you will not hear the word actually from me again during this talk. Believe me, you won't. It's one of these nonsense words, isn't it? And, 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 and if you ever write the word actually or say the word actually, you must do what Dr. Johnson said and strike it out. All right? That's got actually over. <laughs> I think the thing I hear most about is uh, uh, where, do, well, not where do you get your ideas from? That's the, I'm coming to that. Uh, but is this business about writer's blog? I don't know what it means. I don't know what it means. I know what indolence is <laughs> and idleness, you know, but I don't know what a writer's block is. I have blocks about everything. I have blocks about making a telephone call if I don't want to make it, you know, or writing a letter. I can't do it. You know how it is when your mum says to you, you know, would you please, you know, write and thank your Auntie Agnes, you know, for that beautiful, beautiful Christmas present at Christmas. You know this, don't you? And you say, of course I will, mother. Of course I will. Just give me a chance. I'm just on holiday for the moment. And you say, I'll, I'll do it tomorrow. Hmm? And you don't do it tomorrow, do you? And by the end of the week, when you're due back at school, you haven't written it. It's not just become difficult, it's become impossible. <laughs> you can't aggregate at the same time a pencil and a pen and a dress. All you've got to say is, dear Auntie Agnes, what a splendid Christmas present. Your delighted nephew needs it. It takes about 30 seconds, but you can't, you cannot do it, can you? And I know what, you have to put things off, don't you, all the time. And I think that this is what it means. And I think the real answer to this is to start, and this is where I want to start, because I think, you, you spoke about my knowledge of the ancient tongues, didn't you? And I don't want to raise the level, or the tone of this talk too much. But the most important thing I've ever learned in life is this. And again, listen carefully. Initium, initium, the beginning, est is, demidium, that's a hard word, one half of the deed. The beginning is one half of the deed. And almost all European languages have got that proverb, you know, haven't they? I think, what's it in English? Begun is half finished or something like that. And I reckon that if you've got a piece of paper in front of you in a biro, I know some of you use other machines like typewriters. and, and I, I know that, but I just have, I, I, I write everything in longhand, but I have to have ruled paper. I, I, I love ruled paper. Otherwise, everything starts dipping off slightly. <laughs> The, it depends how much you've been drinking, of course, but it goes down like this. But I, I think that this is the most marvellous thing I have ever learned uh, as a proverb from, from the Romans. The beginning is one half of the deed. And, and, and if you think, I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait until, you know, the Almighty whispers in my ear or the muse sits on my shoulder, you could be, be there six months later, can't you? And nothing, nothing is there at all. And I think that, I know, I know that in the war, Winston Churchill said, you know, uh, somebody said, I've got a hundred letters in the intray, and I don't know where to begin. And I think Churchill said, well, why not hundred letters? He said, why? Forget them. He said, just do, just do the one on the top, number a hundred. And then he said, when you've written that, he said, you've made a, an enormous, significant difference. Because for a start, you come down from three figures to two, haven't you? 
And I think where we go wrong and talk about writer's block is that you think you're going to, you think you're going to write the best first sentence, perhaps, the best first paragraph, even first page ever penned, isn't it? I never did that. I always thought to myself, I'm probably going to write the very worst first sentence ever written, the very worst first page ever written, because once you've got something down on the paper, however bad, you've made your start, haven't you? I think it's a bit analogous to building a house, not that I've ever built a house, of course, but I think once you've got something on the page, you can always go back and tart it up, can't you? Can't you? Spell one or two words correctly, perhaps? <laughs> I'm not just thinking of a friend and field and words like that. I mean, things we all have difficulty with, like weird, <laughs> weird, and uh, existent, and so on. You, you know, sometimes you can't think how to, you have to look them up sometimes. And if you, in the spelling correction business, if you have to look up in the dictionary to spell diarrhea or something, or, or you know, the prime minister of uh, Ireland, the tea show, if you've got that problem on the first page, I suggest you tear up the page and start again on something else. <laughs> but it's awfully important, isn't it, to pay some respect for the English language on things like spelling. We had a girl in Oxford who wrote a book called Spelling Does Not Matter. Hmm? And it was quite popular. People read it. And, you know, I tell you one thing, ladies and gentlemen. I bet that woman spent just as long as I did checking the spelling of every word in her book entitled, Spelling Does Not Matter. I would like to bet she spent just as long as all of us doing the same thing. And it's a huge business, this uh, spelling. I know when I, I was working for the Oxford Examination Board, we, we had a, a, an essay title, sort of given something they can write about, My Favourite Animal. Yeah. Anybody can write about my favourite animal, can't they? I mean, even if you live in a deprived neighbourhood, you've probably seen a cat or a dog, haven't you? You maybe got a pet hamster, and if you've not, you've got a television. You, you know you can see a dinosaur or an elephant or something, can't you? We had one boy, first public examination, he wrote, my favourite animal is the E-G-O-G. My favourite animal is the E-G-O-G. Yeah. Every night as I look across our lawn at dusk, I see Mr. E-G-O-G and Mrs. E-G-O-G and all the little E-G-O-G apostrophe S's on the lawn. Not exactly the height of communicative skill, is it? And I remember the boy who wrote that, somebody wrote into me and said, oh, I've got a very difficult problem here, he said. This E-G-O-G, -E he said, I'm not very well aware of all, all these rodents from South America. <laughs> so I think it's a, it's a good thing to spell. Well, there are more important things in life than spelling. We all know that, don't we? I mean, punctuation for a start, isn't it? Enormously important. It's very, very difficult. I'm surprised myself how many top-notch writers, best-selling writers, don't know what a full stop is or when to use it. Or when we used to do use of English, some of our candidates uh, didn't know much about it either. They used to call it the full spot. <laughs> and it's very difficult to tell somebody where to put a full stop. So, and, and, unless you're, uh, you've got to pay some respect to grammar, haven't you? You've got to know what a verb is. You've got to know what a transitive and intransitive verb is. Haven't you? Finite sentence. What a subordinate clause. Very difficult, but we've got to do it. But as I say, when you're tarting it up, you can do all these things, can't you? Cut out a few OTOs, adjectives, lovely. Anyway, I, I do think that if you take that approach and say, this is going to be bad, anyway, once you've tarted it up, even when you look back without tarting it up, isn't it strange how you go back and see something you've written, you say, it's not quite as bad as I thought. You know, two or three days later, you can say, at least... I've got going underway, and I've read it again, and, well, not all that bad, you know. Not all that bad. Once you made a start, hmm? initium est dimidium facti, 
Now then, just, I'm, I'm going, going, to, going to just quote two more words in that is solvitur ambulando, the solution comes through walking, all right? Once you're on the way, once you're on the way, the solution comes, the answer to your problems, ambulando, through walking. Hmm? Do you remember the Bronte, Brontes up in Haworth used to walk around the table with their hands on each other's shoulders, literally, literally, physically, walking around when they were do doing their, fair, their, 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 their children's, children's stories. Hmm? Hmm? Houseman, my greatest hero in life, he, he used to have a couple of pints of beer at lunchtime, he walked for about three or four miles, and as he was walking, I don't know whether you do this, but he's walking and ideas start coming a bit. And, and he would often say that after walking, he would come back, and very often, or at least not infrequently, a poem would appear on the page, just because he kept walking, really. And uh, I'm afraid I'm, I'm not a believer, but, uh, you know, uh, do you remember dear old Abraham in the Old Testament? And in, uh, St. Paul refers to this in Hebrews 11, is it? Saying, uh, by faith Abraham went out not knowing whither he went, you know. Isn't that a wonderful thing to say, you know? Keep going on, page three, page four, chapter three, chapter four, whatever it is. Abraham went out not knowing whither he went in the middle of Mesopotamia or somewhere. All the sheep are starving, nothing to eat, nothing to drink. He's in tents falling to pieces. And he says, we've got to do something. We'll walk one way. And even if he's going, even if he's going the wrong way, hmm, he knows he's getting worse rather than better. So he, he turns around and walks back to where he started. He's got a huge problem, and in writing, if you do have a huge problem in front of you when, 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 when you're writing, don't worry at all. If you come to some unswimmable river, unfordable stream, what you do is to get your helicopter, get your magic carpet, and you go over, over the river, and land on the other side. You know why, don't you? Because once you're on the other side and you look back, you can see where you ought to have crossed. By faith we walked across the river. And I found this, I mean, if you've got your crook, you've determined on the crook from the word go, and you get a murder on a, on a Wednesday, you know, in, in, in wherever it is, Harrogate or somewhere, and you discover when you read back that, you know, you sent him off to Honolulu the day before, you say, well, I think I'd better change the story a little bit. But you can do it if you face it. Hmm? And you say, here we are on Wednesday. You look back and you say, I, I better, better put this Honolulu trip, you know, a, a fortnight beforehand or something like this. Anyway, this whole business, as I say, the beginning is one half of the deed. Once you're underway, solvetur ambulando. You just keep going on. Keep going. I, I never, I, I always wrote... Uh, if I did write, between the arches, uh, between the arches, that's uh, now quarter past seven, and going out for a pint or two of beer at about nine o'clock. So that wasn't very long. But if you wrote one page a day, you might write 360-odd a year, mightn't you? Hmm? I know it's not quite so easy as that. Hmm? But, but you do it gradually, don't you? Plato, you know, is very interested in process. You don't go from A to Z, you go from A to B, and B to C, and, and you do it, do it like this. And if you're a whodunit writer, really, I suppose, like I am, it, it, it's okay, but you, 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 uh, you say, well, uh, I'm in Harrogate, and I want to go to Edinburgh, it's no, no idea to head north, or something like that. You need a beginning, don't you, and a middle and an end. Or as dear old Larkin said, you, you've always got a beginning and a, a muddle and an end you, that, 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 that's going to cause the problem, the muddle bit. And, but I, I think it's a wonderful thing to do. You say, well, I'm not, I, I'm not sure whether we go up the A1 or, or, or you know, the M something or whatever it is. But uh, in, in a sense, uh, one wants to know where the terminus ad quem is. And if this in case is Edinburgh, and I know that I once... Uh, read uh, Ruth Rendell saying, if you're writing a book, no bad idea to 
Plot your journey, all right, from Colchester, as you live, to Edinburgh. That's where you're going to finish. That's where your crook is. And then you're there at Edinburgh, and suddenly you, you divert and go across to Glasgow. Hmm? And what I want to say is, with ideas, with ideas, the thing that has helped me more than anything, because this is the commonest question I ever get asked, where do you get your ideas from? Let me tell you three brief things about the first three book, 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 books I wrote. First one was called Last Bus to Woodstock, where you take an incident in the day. Say you took anybody here wants an idea. Why not uh, take something that has happened today? A small incident, all right? Uh, however banal and prosaic and pedestrian it is. One idea, and then just change one little fact, little bit. One word sometimes in what happened in that incident. Let me tell you, uh, as I say, the first book I wrote about Last Bus to Woodstock, I remember in the early 70s I, when I went to Oxford, I, I used to teach, but uh, deafness took over and I couldn't follow it anymore. And I went to Oxford to, to work for the examination board. There didn't seem to mind in Oxford, funny lot in Oxford, you know. There didn't seem to mind that I was deaf. Anyway, I was driving up. Do you, you know Oxford a bit, don't you? And you, you know you go up the Broadie Street in Oxford, uh, 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 St. Giles, isn't it? And at the top of it, as you go north, the road bifurcates on the, the Woodstock Road on the left and, and, and the Banbury Road on the right. I live on the top of the Banbury Road. But I happen to be going up the, the, the Woodstock Road in a car on my own. Now, then, perhaps I shouldn't tell you this, but there are some men, not all men, but some men who occasionally, occasionally, if they're in a car on their own, have the, the mildest of erotic daydreams. You know this, didn't you, anyway? about picking up some beautiful girl and carting her off into the western horizon, all right? And I was driving up past the hospital on the Woodstock Road, and there was a beautiful girl I saw in front of me, Scandinavian girl, long blonde hair down to her bottom at the back, slim and tall, there she was, and she had a, she had a, a hitchhiking thing, you know, a bit of cardboard in big black letters, big black letters. It said Woodstock, Woodstock. Do you follow the story all right so far, do you? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, w I was going to Woodstock myself. I was going to Woodstock myself. Wonderful, isn't it? I mean, I would have taken her to Birmingham. It wouldn't have mattered about that. But I saw this girl, and, and I, so I, 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 I pulled in onto the left-hand side of the road and leaned across and opened the passenger door, and I said to this lovely girl, I said, Hop in, my darling. It's your lucky day, I said. <laughs> and it was a boy. <laughs> now then, that particular incident for me formed the basis of the first book, first, first crime book I ever wrote. And... I'm very sorry, I was a coward. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what happened after she or he got in. I'm not going to do that. I ought to have done, Pep. But in a, in, a, in a really pedestrian way myself, I turned it into a, a girl, which I'd wanted. And we drove off to Woodstock. And the, that was the first chapter of the first book I wrote, all right? Second book I wrote, I, 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 as I say, the first 13 years of my life, I was a school teacher. One of my headmasters, a wonderful man, who became headmaster of Gordonston and taught all your roles there. And he, 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 he uh, told me one night uh, when, when we were in Corby. Have you heard of Corby? Yes. Where is it then? <laughs> yeah, brownie point to you, ma'am. <laughs> and and, and, and uh, he said to me, when I went for an interview, now, and I bet everybody here has had an interview, the, the real trouble with interviews, isn't it, is, is that you always think of the best answers just as you're leaving the room, don't you? When you're on the bus or the train back home, you think, my goodness me, every opportunity I had there to, to distinguish myself, and I didn't do it. Oh, dear, why didn't I do it? But he said he'd done a wonderful, a, a, a wonderful interview. He thought he had. And he said, I think I impressed them. I said, why do you think that was? He said, well, they asked me what, you know, they always ask you, what do you think would be your biggest problem when you, if, you, if we offer you the headship here? What do you think you, you think would be the biggest problem? Hmm? And he said, I'm pretty sure I know what that is. And he said, what, what do you mean? And he said, I think it'll be the caretaker. <laughs> 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 and he was right. <laughs> yeah. but, he, but, but, but this man said, after he'd had the interview, 
is in Kettering in Northamptonshire, where the interview was. It was a November, dark, dank, dismal, drizzly night, about seven o'clock, and everything had happened. He'd had his interview, and he had two hours to wait or so before he went back to London, lived in North London. And so he went into a, a, a pub, and he thought, oh, you know, I'll sit down and relax a bit. So he went in, and, and he ordered a, a, a large... Uh, a large Glenfiddich scotch. He was very fond of, uh, of uh, single malt scotch, like Inspector Morse. A anyway, he ordered this scotch, and, and I mean, I, I, mean I, I don't want to put anybody here onto alcohol at all, but it does seem to me quite, <laughs> quite incontrovertible that if you do have a, 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 a tipple, your favorite tipple, be it scotch or vodka or whatever it is, or gin, uh, the world a few minutes later seems a far, a far happier and kindlier place than it did before, doesn't it? And he felt, I didn't do too badly in that interview after all. I didn't do too badly at all. I may, may have got the job. And so he said, yes, that's lovely. I feel more relaxed. And so you know what he did? He went to the bar and he had a, he, he, he ordered another large, large Glenfiddich and he came back and he had that and he felt absolutely convinced that he would be appointed uh, to, to this particular headship. He had a look at his watch, and he had a, an hour or so to go. And, and he went out, he went to the loo, and he was coming out of the loo, there was a phone hanging uh, just outside the loo, all right? And so he rang, rang up his wife in London, and he said, hello, darling, I think I've had a, quite a good day, and, and uh, I'll be home in about uh, uh, two hours or so, uh, and uh, I'm very much looking forward to seeing you again. And do you know what she said? Do you know what his wife said? The women all know what his wife said. <laughs> You've been drinking, haven't you? <laughs> so he put the phone down and went out, and he went out into this drizzly night, into the bus shelter, just beside the pub. And when he was standing there, a girl seemed to, to him in her teen, late teens perhaps, she came in, and uh, they don't wear them so much now, you know, there's plastic mats, you know, see-through plastic mats, don't you, with myriads of rivulets dribbling down from the drizzle. And she said to him, I know it sounds a bit twee. This was in the early 50s. And she said to him, would you like to be naughty? Could you hear me all right at the back? <laughs> <laughs> would you like to be naughty? Well, of course he would, wouldn't he? <laughs> of course he would. So he said no. <laughs> <laughs> and caught the bus hmm, to the station and went from the station to this miserable missus of his in North London. And there it was. And next morning, you remember... Telegrams in those days, congratulations, unanimous decision, Robert. All, all, all the appointing committee, we've appointed you headmaster. Uh, no, 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 then that, uh, that, that is the first chapter of the second book I wrote, which is called Last Seen Wearing. And the headmaster said to me, headmaster, you all know this, don't you, as soon as you, you passed O-level at uh, 16, you know, uh, well, not everybody used to, used to, Pass O level, but anyway, all the boys and girls are there. These days, of course, it's all those who've passed a GCSE at 16. And it's extraordinarily difficult to fail G GCSE. <laughs> well, you know that anyway. But everybody's there, and the headmaster, the new headmaster, stood there, and he, he had all his colleagues there, you know, the head of French and physics and German and metalwork, saying, you know, if you come and uh, work for me in a sixth form, you'll do wonderfully well. You know the feeling, don't you? So, so that's fine. And the headmaster introduced himself and then sat down. And then he looked around his pupils. And in the middle of the front row, he saw the girl, this beautiful girl who had accosted him in the bus shelter. Hmm? Now then, that's the first chapter of the second book I wrote. And I'll listen to this carefully. But I made one little change. One little change. And you don't need a big change, do you? You can change one monosyllable for another monosyllable, can't you? Instead of him saying no, hmm? 
and it's suddenly much more interesting, isn't it? <laughs> Anyway, that was last seen when the oddest thing about that was I put that in Kidlington, you know, just north of Oxford, where Inspector Morse lives, or had, had, had his HQ. And I know, I know that one of the... I, I moved the school, of course, from one side of the road to the other. It had to be in a school, and I, 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 they, bless them, they you, you used to wear a uniform in those days. And instead of a blue uniform, they had a red uniform on the wrong side of the road. And, uh, and I know I met the senior English mistress from this particular school about six months later. It was a beautiful book, she said. It, curiously pleasing, she said, to, you know, walk the same streets. You know how it is, don't you? So, oh, I know that street, I know where we are and everything like this. She said, we, we, we enjoy that enormously. She said, there's only one thing that puzzled everybody in the school. She said, how on earth did you know that the headmaster was having an affair with one of the girls in the <laughs> sixth It's when reality takes over from fiction, isn't it? Let me just very quickly tell you the third. So that was a change. The first one was a change, the second one was a change. Because I went deaf, I thought it was my duty to go along to the lip-reading classes, all right? This is, again, where you change one thing. The third book I wrote was called The Silent World of Nicholas Quinn. I'll finish after that. But we used to go along on a Tuesday night, and there were about 13 of us. We used to sit in a row like this, and everybody had to take their, 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 their hear, hearing aids off, so you couldn't hear anything at all. And our teacher was a girl who had been deaf from birth. She was a brilliant lip reader. Now then, if you know anybody who's deaf, it is extraordinarily difficult to get above about, I don't know, 65 70%. It's very, very difficult. I mean, if you're a conscientious student of languages and you learn modern Greek or Spanish or something or German, it's pretty good if you've got these records and you go there and you practice it. It's pretty easy to get up to about 90% of it if you really try awfully hard. But you can't do this with lip reading. And the answer, and the reason why, is perfectly simple. And that is that on the lips, on the lips... Some of these consonants, especially perhaps the labial consonants, are exactly the same. They're indistinguishable, or is it undistinguishable? Whichever. So if you have the three labial consonants B and M and P, and you want to say my and by and pi, all right? P-I-E, M-Y, B-Y-P-I-E. If you do that, you get on the lips, all right? You can't distinguish them, can you? You don't even know what order I set them in. <laughs> very, very difficult. Anyway, this is Tuesday night, and she was talking about the labial consonants, always uh, 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 on and off about these very, very difficult things. And the caretaker, I'm the second time we mentioned the caretaker. I hope, hope there have been no actual issues yet, have there? None, sorry. <laughs> The caretaker used to come in at five to nine, hmm? when we were all sitting there. Five to nine, and he used to shout at the top of his voice, Time you lot, finish whatever you're doing. Have you heard that sort of thing before? I've got to come in here, close the windows, sweep the floors, and lock up the premises. Whatever you're doing, pack it up. Five to nine. We didn't hear him, of course. I told you we got... <laughs> Anyway, anyway, one night he came in, one night he came in at ten to nine, ten to nine, this aged grey-haired caretaker, and he said, he said to us all, he said to us, Has anybody got this? You, you ought to be in that class. <laughs> because it's very difficult. You've got a label consonant B, haven't you? Another one in M. You don't hear the second B in the building. Another, another, another label consonant. ING just disappears into another. There's a bomb in the building. And so she, she, she said, thank you very much. <laughs> she went on. 
We were sitting at 13, I was in the class, he was one of the first, first chap, uh, he was a 93-year-old fellow, sitting a couple from me, there you couldn't hear at all. And she said to him, he's there. <laughs> and he went, what? <laughs> well, any, anyway, we, 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 we went one after the other until we'd all got it. Now then, I know what you're all thinking. I know it. Why didn't she tell us <laughs> to put our hearing aids back in? Hmm? Well, all that, though, that would have taken a little while, you know. We, we, we would have done it. But as she explained to us all afterwards, she said this was probably going to be the most, the most important piece of information we'd ever read in the whole of our lives on anybody else's lips. And she said, you're going to be so proud of yourself, you know, that you got it yourself. Uh, of course, the caretaker by this time is tearing his hair out. <laughs> but any, anyway, finally we all got it. And, and, and it's about five past nine by now. <laughs> and, and she told us to put our hearing aids back in. Now then, I don't know whether you know. Yeah, I bet you do, all of you know, one or two people who are completely deaf, don't you? And if, well, without a hearing aid. And if, if you put... If you put your hearing aid back in, everybody, virtually everybody, says exactly the same. I'm back in the land of the living. Hmm? I'm back in the land of the living. And this old boy, who might, this 93-year-old who couldn't hear or lip read either, he put his hearing aid back in. Hmm? And he said, I'm back in the land of the living. He said. And then he said, and it wouldn't have mattered, he said, we wouldn't have heard the bloody thing anyway. <laughs> now, now then, that, that, is, that is permeating the silent world of Nicholas Quinn, a book I wrote about that. And, and I was talking about an incident like that where you change one thing. And I, I won't go into details, but, but the whole book really is based on somebody misunderstanding from lip reading one of the labial, labial consonants, consonants for, 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 for another. Now, anyway, you've been listening carefully. And if we go to questions now, could, could, I, could I just say one thing? And that is one of my colleagues in, in Oxford uh, uh, went not all that long ago to talk to the, to the, uh, to the uh, Railway Society in the school in, in Chipping Norton. Have you heard of Chipping Norton? You're very knowledgeable here, aren't you? Yeah. He, he, he went along there to the grammar school when it was, well, it was a few years ago. He went to talk to the Railway Society about the pre-war transport support system in Schleswig-Holstein. And, and you can understand that drew the crowds in, can't you? <laughs> And, and, and he gave, it, gave his talk, and at the end of his talk, and this is what all teachers say in charge of these meeting societies, he said, our very distinguished speaker has agreed, has agreed to stay behind and answer all your questions. Hmm? That's what we're going to do. And he said, could we please have the first question? Have you ever been to meetings like that? <laughs> and he turned to my colleague and he said, uh, don't, don't worry, he said, the boys, the boys are just formulating their questions. <laughs> he said, we'll, <laughs> we'll, give the, we'll give them a couple of minutes. And he gave him a couple of minutes, and then he said, all right, boys, you've had a chance to formulate your questions. Could we please have the first question? <laughs> Very embarrassing, isn't it? And finally, one boy on the back row. There were only four boys there anyway. <laughs> One boy on the back row put his hand up, and the teacher was so pleased, so pleased. He said, yes, my son, what is your question? And the boy said, please, sir, is it time to go home yet? <laughs> anyway, it's time for questions. <laughs> well, could I just like to say, uh, before we hand over to, to the floor, that is certainly the funniest creative writing masterclass I have ever attended. <laughs> and let me tell you, I've been to some. So um, we'll take questions for 10 minutes, and then um, Colin's books are available on the Otica stand outside. 
But if you can beg 10 minutes um, of your patience just for a short interview with Mark Lawson, but Colin will come back. So um, are there any questions? Uh, can you wait for the microphone? It's just coming here. Have you formulated a question, sir? Have you? <laughs> Uh, I understand that the BBC are thinking about uh, doing a, a short series uh, on the exploits of Sergeant Lewis. Yes. And I understand from the Daily Mail that you could be writing the script. But please don't be, talk to me about, about the, the Daily, Daily Mail, Mail. right? <laughs> <laughs> <that I will. laughs> and I understand that you could well be writing the script. I'm just quite interested in what your views are about it yes. and whether you are writing the script yes. or not. Uh, 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 you want me to comment on that? Is that well, right? yes, absolutely. This is the Inspector uh, uh, Lewis idea, isn't it? Uh, the, the, yes. I, I, obviously, from my own point of view, uh, as I said, I kept the copyright of Mawson. Whatever scripts went through, I, 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 was, and I was very grateful. I didn't write much myself, but occasionally uh, a, a bit here and there. But I, I shall have to look at this. Now then, the, 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 the ITV, I think, uh, are very anxious to try to get evens with the BBC again, aren't they? Because I think, especially in the football, the BBC uh, one hands down, I, I think, on this. Anyway, they, they thought it would be a good thing at least to try. You know, in, 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 uh, I, I don't know whether you ever see, see, see these uh, things. You know, they keep repeating Morse on, on a television. No, 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 don't get me wrong. I'm very, very glad myself that they do, that they do repeat. Well, well, wouldn't you be? I mean, they give me quite a lot of money for the repeats. That's a very good reason. But there's a second reason, and that is that I myself can never understand these complicated plots the first time round. <laughs> so, they, and, and, and I, I, know, I never got Sergeant Lewis even anywhere near getting his inspector's examination. Do you remember? Poor old Lewis, you know. Every time he went in a pub, he had to buy all the booze, didn't he, for, for Morse. Anyway, they said, look here, if we can make him a, a, an inspector, he, he, he said, we, we'll, we'll have a couple of trial programs. And, and uh, as I say, since, since the copyright is mine, I said, well, look here, before we've seen anything to do with the scripts, there are two things that I'm going to insist on. A is that, uh, that uh, not, nothing about resurrecting Morse. That's finished. Both John, Thor, and Ass, and, 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 uh, and, and the character in the book have died. But I said if we, we had Kevin Waitley with some sort of continuity, and secondly, if we had the, the, the films, only the two for a start, uh, filmed in Oxford, I, I, I would say let's go ahead on the condition that we get some decent... Uh, Decent scripts, yes. That's where we are at the minute. I think the Daily Mail knows... Mo no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Who else has formulated a question? <laughs> yes, ma'am. Um, a few years ago, I live in Hitchin in Hertfordshire, and I was um, walking through town one day and saw the... Can you speak up a bit? I beg your pardon. Um, yeah. I saw the, um, the famous Red Jag... Yes. in uh, the Market Square yes. near St Mary's Church and was then interested to see it obviously appear as if it were in Oxford. How many other locations, having just said that um, Morse was generally filmed in Oxford, um, did they use? Where, where the Jaggers been, you mean? Well, uh, I mean, obviously, John Thor and uh, Kevin Waitley yeah. were there as well um, and they filmed an episode and when it actually appeared, it, w it was shown as a church in... Um, Oxford, although I know that it was actually St Mary's Church in Hitchin in Hertfordshire. Yeah. Well, well awful lot of questions there, really. First of all, a Jagger. I, I never wrote a Jagger. The only, uh, as, as Maria knows, the only thing I ever changed in the books was we, bought, we, we, we had a Lancia in the original book, but we couldn't find a clapped-out Lancia, but we, we, we found a clapped-out Jaguar, a 1962 model, which I think we bought for £400, sold for 800 and, Eight, 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 85,000 recently. But <laughs> it, 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 uh, John, John Thor used to hate driving the Jaguar because uh, some of the older ones here will, will, will remember the times you had to double D clutch. Do you remember that for everything? You know, you went from one and you didn't go to two. You went from one into neutral, revved and pushed it into two. Uh, but it, it was a dreadful thing. And uh, John used to hate driving the car because it used to break down all the time. Now, and I'll tell you a secret. I've not told this to many people, but there's one where we come down. Do you know Oxford a bit? As you go down, to, you turn right at the Martyr's Memorial to go into the Randolph. Well, the wretched thing's stalled there. And if you look terribly carefully, when it's stalled completely, look terribly carefully, you can see 
through the back window three bald heads. One of them is mine. And as regards places, I, I think we did virtually everywhere in Oxford, really. And people used to say, you know, you come out of the hospital and you turn left and you're in the high street and so on. There was only one reason for this, is the parking. You know, you can't get about half a dozen vans in the middle of the high street and so on when you're there. But we did do an awful lot of things all over the shop uh, in Oxford itself. And Oxford, I think, in the more serious, became almost a character in itself, almost something that people people thought that's a character like John and Kevin and so on and I know we, for example we went to Austria and uh, Australia and we went to uh, Italy twice and people I thought they were I thought the Australian thing was very good but people say oh yeah it was all right but when you're coming back to Oxford again and I think we, we did go 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 all the rounds yes mm. yes yes ma'am oh. mm. What made you kill off Doc, uh, Inspector Morse? Well, why, 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 I, 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 didn't, I didn't kill Inspector Morse. He died of natural causes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, te I tell you why. Several reasons why I stopped. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, getting any younger. I'm 74 now. I think that anybody who has written... I don't think anybody gets very much better as you get older, and quite a lot of people get worse. I think I'd lost a lot of freshness about, uh, about writing. I think that the relationship between Morse and, and, and Lewis was probably ab ab above all the thing that people enjoyed, didn't they? The relationship between the two. And I began to feel I was getting a bit cliché-ridden. Uh, in every book, after a while, I had to say, you know, Morse is so mean with money and so on, he never says thank you to anybody. And I know in the last book, I, I, I thought, you know, I don't want any more of this, really. Morse and Lewis go, go into a pub at, at uh, you know, one minute to 11 or 11 o'clock, and, and Morse says to Lewis, uh, uh, what will you have to drink, Lewis? It's on me. And, of course, Lewis cannot believe his luck. And he said, oh, I think I'll have a... And Morse said, oh, no, you're driving, aren't you? you, you, you you'll, you'll, you'll have an or orange juice, won't you? And he says to the barman, and he said, I'll have a pint, pint of your best bitter, whichever the locals drink, and, and a large Glenfiddich. That's all right. And, and so he gets, gets the drinks. And uh, he gets his wallet out, Morse does. And, and he says to the poor girl behind the counter, first customer... You can change a 50-pound note, all right, can't you? <laughs> and he goes, you're my first customer. Haven't you got anything smaller? And, and oh, says, don't think I have. Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is a, gets a bit cliche-ridden, if you see what I mean. You're, do, you're exemplifying. That's, that, that's a word I, I learned very early on from Maria. Don't say he was mean. Exemplifies meanness, you see. But that sort of thing, I think a lot of people get a little bit tired. Not fed up, but you think you've done enough in a relationship. And I felt that. I felt I was getting a bit older and a bit staler all the time and lacking in freshness. And above all, lacking in ideas for new stories. I mean, it is awfully difficult, isn't it, to find new stories? I mean, how many millions of, of, of plots, etc., uh, have been written in, in the detective field. And I did feel it was getting very, very much more difficult for me to do it. So I thought the time had come to, uh, to put the line under Morse. But nobody is, nobody, nobody's going to take over Morse. Nobody's going to take over from John Thor. Dear old John, I think everybody was very sad, almost in a personal way when John Thor died. I rang him up, I spoke to him on the phone uh, a fortnight before he died, and, and people used to say it was a bit like Jack Hawkins, but it wasn't. Do you remember Jack Hawkins when he had this awful threat? He got a talk like this. But John had nothing to do. It wasn't his pharynx or his larynx, whatever, uh, uh, but it was the esophagus, uh, you know, where, where, where you get down to the stomach, uh, but, but his voice was perfectly normal, and he, he was extremely optimistic, this is what I shall always remember about, that was the last conversation I had with him, and he said, I'm sitting here, and he said, I'm fine, the consultants are very pleased with me, and he said, I've got three scripts around me, he said, I've got to learn the lines, three scripts around me of, uh, what was it, you know, the 
QC. Kavanagh. Uh, Kavanagh QC. And he said, you've got to, got to, got to learn the lines. I, I remember very well when John and Kevin were in a caravan with, uh, in, in Oxford, and I think it was the literary editor of the, the Sunday Express, not, not the Daily Mail. The Sunday Express came to see us and said to John, uh, I suppose when you're here, we were in a caravan, and he said, when, you, when you're here, you know, I suppose you talk about all the nuances, you know, and the facial uh, body movements and so on, uh, and get to know, you know, and a look, an eyebrow, and everything. <laughs> John looked at him a little bit bewildered. And he said, no, 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 nothing like that, he said. We try to learn the lines, don't we, Kev? <laughs> and I, I thought this was a wonderful thing to say, because however brilliant you are, However brilliant you are, you've got to know your line. And Maria mentioned, uh, men mentioned John Gilgood when he came along. Uh, when, when I spoke to him, when he said, w w would, would you be willing to be the, the, the chancellor, you know, chancellor of Oxford University? I remember him saying, of course, dear boy. <laughs> <laughs> and when he was there in the Sheldonian uh, talking, he kept, he kept saying, oh, <laughs> I've forgotten my lines. <laughs> I must go and have a woodbine. And he, he used to go, go out and have a cigarette. And do you know, everybody on the, on the car, everybody was ever so pleased. Because they said, here's the greatest actor we got in the UK. And if Sir John can forget his lines, you don't get too cross with me if I forget fluff my few lines. But uh, yes, what was the question? <laughs> I don't think it matters anymore. But we have time for one more, which I think you wanted to ask. Did you choose John Thaw personally for the part of Morse? No, I'd never met him before. I've got one, I've got lots of qualities uh, in life, uh, of course. <laughs> but the one, one, one I have got, I don't watch much television. And, and, and unless we're doing very well at cricket, um, I, 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 I watch then, and if there's some news item, but I don't watch the television at all. So I had not known John at all. I'd never seen him before. You know, he was in things like the Sweeney, wasn't he? And, and, uh, Home to Roost. There was a comedy program called Home to Roost. But I never met John before. I had seen Kevin before in uh, Ovi Design Pet. I'd seen him before. Uh, so I didn't know anything about him at all. I, 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 uh, I met them first on the set one day in Brasenose College, Oxford. Uh, and and uh, that was the first time I met him with a man called Kenny McBain. Kenny McBain, who started off the series. Uh, really, I mean, he was the prime mover, wasn't he, in all of this. A wonderful man. He died, alas, at the age of 41 oh, of this wretched Hodgkin's disease. But he would have been a huge man in television, Kenny McBain. And oddly enough, uh, I was telling you, wasn't I, that re recently somebody else produced a new book on well, the Oxford of Inspector Morse in the Sheldonian there, only on Wednesday this week. And three ladies came up to me in the middle age, I suppose, and, and, and uh, said, would you sign a book? I'd not written it, but uh, they wanted me to sign it. <laughs> Very so nice. Famous, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and they said, you don't know who we are, do you? And I said, I'm afraid I don't. And they said, we are the three sisters of Kenny McBain, who started off on Morse. And uh, I, I mentioned to you, didn't I? This, the, the, this made my day. To think it was quite a long time ago. You only did the we did 33 uh, two-hour Inspector Morses, didn't we? And I think he he just did the first two. I think he did the first eight or something like that. But it was a wonderful uh, wonderful uh, time for me just to think back on the times when dear old Kenny used to come along and talk to us. But that that was uh, the mid 80s, wasn't it, when we started on the on the television. But, but John, he was so optimistic, John Thor was. And uh, it was a shock, I think, to everybody, including Sheila, that uh, right at the end, I think that he got cancer all over the shop. And, and in the finish, if you get that, your body some, sometimes just collapses, doesn't it? You can't take any more. But he, he, he was a wonderful man. And as I say, everybody was uh, almost personally sad, I think. Did, did you feel that when, when, when John died? Thank you for asking, anyway. Well, Colin, thank you so much. And a lovely way to end, I think, um, remembering John Thorpe and Kenny McBain, who had a huge amount to do with Inspector Morse, um, but not quite as much as Colin. <laughs> so thank you very much. 
Thank you for listening to this event by Harrogate International Festivals. Don't forget to rate and subscribe for this podcast. For more events, recordings, resources and information about our arts charity, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.